1, it says, As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. In another parallel passage, Matthew 24, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. This is the last time Jesus is in the temple. He leaves it for the last time. He's been here many times. And um, as if uh, his uh, disciples felt like they were tour guides, uh, showing Jesus, the, the visitor from the hick town of Nazareth, around the big city, they say, hey, look, aren't these great buildings that we have going on here? And uh, Don and I were in uh, Florida yesterday. We were in Mississippi last week. We, with our other ministry, we have a sending church out of Jackson, Mississippi. We preached there last Sunday. So we were with them last week. And, and then in Florida yesterday, flew in last night. We were preaching last week at Cornerstone. And we love that church. We love those people. And Donna looked at me and said, I sure miss our church. We love you people. But last night when we were flying home, they were coming in from Phoenix, and they came over the intercom and said, and if you look out the window to your right, you'll see the lights of Las Vegas, and just beyond that is the Grand Canyon. Thank you for joining us on this flight tonight. You know, what are you, or two? And these, these disciples, they think they're the tour guide for Jesus. Look at the great stones of the great temple, and what a wonderful place this is. And Welcome to our town of Jerusalem. The tour guide will see you out. And it was a great place. Look at this. It was a great building. This was built by a dude named Herod the Great. The building on the right is the Wailing Wall. That's the, the, the wall of the Temple Mount. The temple used to sit up on top of this, and that wall to the left has been added in later centuries. And what happened was they just kind of took all of the rubble from Temple Mount and pushed it off to the west into the, what's called the Cheesemakers Valley, which is over here to the left, and that's just a pile of rubble. And then they built this wall and the uh, rooms behind that. And so these are great walls. In fact, it's built by a guy named Herod the Great. He's called the Great not because he was a great guy, because he was not. He was a really, really miserable, terrible person. He's the one who killed the babies when Jesus was born. He was the one, when he died, he knew he was about to die in Jericho. He collected a bunch of Jewish leaders of the country in Jericho, put them in a corral, and ordered that the day he died, they all be executed, murdered, to ensure that there would be mourning in Israel the day he died. Mercifully, his son did not listen to that one. But he was Herod the Great, not because he was a good guy, but because of his building projects. He built the temple. He built, it's called Herod's Temple for a reason. He built Masada. He built all kinds of ports at the same time that he was killing his family because he was afraid they were going to try and steal his throne all with one hand tied behind his back. He was just an amazing person. And they were great stones. The second largest stone and known of in the history of construction is in that wall. It's uh, it's 40 feet long and it weighs 440 tons. And here it is dozens of feet off of the ground and just a few feet away from the largest known stone in the history of construction. It weighs 660 tons. And Herod the Great did all of this. And so the disciples, this would have been visible. It would have been covered with a plaster, but that portion of the wall would be visible in the day of Jesus. And so this disciple is reasonable in saying, would you look, would you look at the architecture? Have you ever seen anything like that in Nazareth? I don't think so. Welcome to Jerusalem. And then Jesus does what he does so well. He gives them a response that in the middle of their presentation, it just kind of flummoxed them, the whole bunch of them. And, and it, it's kind of like, would you look at the construction, how precise it went. Wait a minute, what did he say? Did you hear what he said? He's good at doing that, isn't he? Look at what he says there in verse 2. They're bragging about their buildings, and Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? 
There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Wait, wait a minute, I'm trying to show you how great our town is and you're telling us that this is all going to be destroyed and sure enough, Temple Mount has been swept completely clean. It's all been pushed off to the west there. These words of Jesus have already been fulfilled. And after he said this, they made their way very probably in silence, trying to figure out what is it that Jesus had just said out the east gate, up the east, across the valley on the east and up the mountain to the top of the Mount of Olives. Jesus would be standing right about here. And that's the Kidron Valley, the Kidron River, and there's a graveyard. This Schindler's buried here and one of the prime ministers, and there's a graveyard there. That's the Dome of the Rock, and that's, used, that's where the temple used to sit. That's Temple Mount up there. And so Jesus standing here, as he looks at Jerusalem, begins to talk with his disciples about what is going to happen to his beloved city of Jerusalem. There's an extended version of this in Matthew 24 and 25. If you would like more information on it this afternoon, there's some good reading. And Jesus is talking to them, looking at that picture, looking at that scene, and says, you know, let me tell you something. I am going to come back. And don't we, we're kind of tempted to think, well, when Jesus comes back, we're just going to keep getting better and better and better until finally, Jesus finally says, oh, they're finally ready for me. I'll show up now. But Jesus lets us know it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be an upward progression. We think that we will progress on a spiritual and intellectual level until we have finally reached a new age of enlightenment and self-actualization. There was a guy at the beginning of the 20th century, a guy named Newell Dwight Hillis, who said, we've learned too much. There won't be any more wars. We've learned too much to have any more wars. And then we had World War I, and then we had World War II, and we had Korea, and we had Vietnam, and all the rest and everything we've had since 01. And that's just the United States. That's not talking about the slaughter, the genocide, the horrible things that have happened around the world. They say that the 20th century is the bloodiest century in the history of humanity. Now, I don't know how they measure that, but that doesn't sound like a good, good anything to me. And to sit back and think, well, it's going to get better and better and we're going to keep, keep uh, progressing on our spiritual journey upwards, Jesus looks at us and he says, look on the dark side, it's going to get worse. <laughs> It's like that old saying, it's always darkest right before the lights really go out. And folks, God promises that He will come, and then when He comes, He has something to say to us. But there, there's a reality which precedes His coming that we often miss. I love that verse in Psalm 50, verse 3. It's one of my favorite verses. It says, Our God will come, and He will not be silent. Now what that means is that God will show up. When you come to Jesus and you say, listen, I just, I just want to spend some time with you. I need to hear from you. His promise is our God will come. And when He comes, He has something to say. So we come to Him with all of our prayer requests, and these are great. It's great to bring our prayer requests. But here's a weird and wild idea. How about if we just every now and then just stop talking? Say, Jesus, I'm just going to listen to you for a little while and just see what He has to say. It might be a fascinating thing. He promises our God will come. He will not be silent. But there's something else in that verse as he continues in Psalm 50 verse 3. He warns us of something that's going to happen first when he says, Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. I looked at that as kind of like two donuts around the center piece of God's presence. Right in the middle of it is Jesus. He's there, it's peaceful, and he has something to say. But there are two donuts that precede him. The first donut is a fire, a devouring fire. And we look at our lives and go, wow, man, the temperature sure has turned up. I'm in the cauldron now, you know. And things seem to be heating up. Well, get ready, there's a second donut coming, and it is a mighty tempest. It's going to blow your Dixie Chicks posters right off the wall. 
Do what? <laughs> Donna said, bummer. <laughs> she has two of them. any rate. <laughs> and then, after the fire, after the wind, then our God shows up. This is what happened to Elijah. It's what happened to Elijah on the mountain. God showed up and the still small voice did speak to Elijah, but it spoke to him after the earthquake, after the fire, after the wind. Then there was the still small voice. And friends, there are many of us in difficult situations in our life and we say, I'm done with it. I'm ready for the peace and quiet. You know, I'm, I'm ready for some peace and quiet too and I love the presence of Jesus. But there is a reality that sometimes we have to face that every now and then it might just going to be get a little worse. And we need to be ready for that. And that's what Jesus is very honest and very realistic about. That things will not continue to get better and better. They will get worse. And friends, the utopia, the, the utopia of eternity that Jesus is coming, that's a wonderful reality and I look forward to that. But before it gets here, Jesus lets them and he lets us know there are some hard days ahead. Look at what he says there in verse 5. Look what he said in verse 5, Mark 13, 5. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. The Braxton Hicks are just getting started and there will be no epidural block for these. And friends, there are, there are times of turmoil in all segments of society and creation that, that there's going to be turmoil there. And here he addresses national levels of turmoil when he talks about wars and rumors of wars. He talks, look there in verse 9, he talks about spiritual turmoil when he says, be on your guard, they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Things are going to be bad in the spiritual realm also. There will be spiritual turmoil. In verse 14, the abomination of desolation will be set up in the holy place. Terrible things are going to be happening in the house of God that will make the, the Christians in verses 15 through 18 run, flee, get out of Jerusalem. Just try and save your life. And friends, there will be trials like... Nothing that has ever been seen before according to verses 19 and 20, but in verse 20, even in the middle of the difficulty, God will send His grace. Look at what it says in verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. Friends, the spiritual turmoil... Even in the middle of all of the difficulty, Jesus is going to show up. And the spiritual turmoil will further express itself in verses 21 and 22 with people claiming to be the Christ returned. And we've had a lot of nut jobs that have said to be Jesus, right? And they grow their hair out and they try to get the beard, but the clothes, you know, they just don't fit with society. And so, they, you know, we, we know it's not him. And friends, just like Jesus prophesied, there will be plenty who claim to be Christ. But he says in verse 23, be on your guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Now why? Why is he telling us? Why is he warning us of this? Why is he telling us there will be false Christ? Because, look in verse 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
There are some things Jesus is looking at and saying, I, I choose to willingly be ignorant of. I choose not to know because that's the Father's. And, and when He says now is the day, that's the day that I'm going to say, okie dokie, here we go. But until then, no one knows the day. So when you see somebody coming up saying, you know, I'm the return Christ, just wanted to let you know I'm here to help and let me know what I can do for you, just know that's not me. Because nobody knows the day. Not the angels, not even the sun. And the turmoil will continue. Look in verse 12. There will be familial turmoil. When brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. It's not going to be good for the families. There's going to be cosmic turmoil. Look in verse 24. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And it's only after all of these difficulties that we see verse 26 when it says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And friends, the cosmic turmoil, look in verse 31, will be so great that the heavens and the earth will pass away, but Jesus is so eternal that He said, verse 31, my words will not pass away. What a wonderful thing. You can know something eternal today if you'll just study God's Word. His words will never pass away. What you know in His Word today will still hold true in a thousand years. That is a wonderful reality. And in the middle of all of this, look there in verse 31, he makes a statement that has, that's just brought up questions and has caused fighting among the beloved <laughs> for generations. When he said, look there in verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What in the world is that supposed to mean? And so you have, you have groups of people. You have two main camps that go down different rabbit holes. And then you have a whole bunch of independents who stand up and give their opinion. Sounds a lot like the presidential election, doesn't it? And one of them says, well, this is talking about the generation that was listening to Jesus. All of those people who are standing there, that generation will not die away, they won't pass away until all of these things have been fulfilled. And they come up with all of their arguments and reasons why they're right, but the simple reality is that Jesus didn't return before they died. So maybe it's not talking about that. And then you have those who say, no, it's that generation who sees the budding of the fig tree. He's going to talk about the budding of the fig tree in verse 28 in just a minute. It's going to be so cool. It's the generation that sees the budding of the fig tree. And we all know that that is the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. And every Christian has already had it stamped on their get into heaven free card that Israel became a nation on May 14, 1948. All of us know that, right? And so if you're a Christian, you really know that. And so the generation that sees that, that's the generation it'll see all the, the return of Jesus. And so we go to the last two verses of Job and we find there that a generation's 35 years. So we add 35 to the 1948 of Israel becoming a nation and Jesus is going to return in 1983. Isn't that a great thing? Except for one little minor detail. Oops. So we check our math, you know. And then we find that really there are 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come in 1988. Remember that book? And then when he didn't come in 1988, he checked his math and realized he forgot to carry the one. So there are 89 reasons Jesus is going to return in 1989. And friends, all the way through, people have been predicting and trying to figure out and answer the question of when, 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 to discern the puzzle. Well, let's put the pieces of this puzzle together. 
When is Jesus going to return? And, and in asking that question, I'm afraid we missed the whole point of this conversation. There's still people trying to figure it out. Some of them so eager to see the return of Jesus that they commit suicide in mass because they realize that Jesus is in a spaceship on the dark side of the moon and they're going to go meet him there rather than have to fight the crowds at the TSA checkpoint. And we look at this and people get into all kinds of arguments and friends, we have to realize maybe we really just don't know. And maybe that's just okay. Revelation 8.1 says, And there was silence in the heaven for space of half an hour. One guy submitted that that was so that everyone could change their charts. Get it right on when Jesus was actually going to return. But there are some indicators. There are some precursors that we should be able to see the approach of that day. Look there in verse 28. Verse 28, it says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. But friends, Jesus does what he does so well, and that is he's far more cryptic about these things than we wish that he were. And so we start trying to figure everything out, what this means and what that represents. And I wonder, you know, he said, he said it's going to be like someone who goes on a far journey and he's, he puts people in charge of things. I wonder if we spend more time watching the gate looking for his return than we do just getting the work done. I wonder if it's, if it's more, let's station some people at the gate so when we see, listen, listen, when you see Jesus coming around old man Gurr's place over there, holler at us so we'll get to work. You know, back in the 70s there was a bumper sticker, Jesus is coming back was the big theme of the 70s and there was a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming soon, look busy. Well, that's an obnoxious thing to say. But how many of us, how many of us really do that? How many of us have somebody stationed at the gate watching for the return of Jesus instead of just busying ourselves with the task of getting the gospel out? And we sit back and say, oh, but so many things have happened. We see, we see wars and rumors of wars. 20th century is the bloodiest century in the history of humanity. And we see more earthquakes than we've ever seen before. And there were tornadoes. And when we were in Mississippi in 30 minutes, they had an inch of rain. Boy, it sounds like the return of Christ to me. And families, they're just falling all to pieces and on and on and on. You know, well, surely Jesus is, it's ready for Jesus' return. But of all the things that have happened, there's one thing that has not happened yet, and that is in verse 10 when it says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And friends, it hasn't been yet. It has not been proclaimed to all nations. There are people groups, there are tribes, there are language groups, there are nations that have never heard. It's an old statistic, but Albania was less than one-half of 1% Christian. This was 20 years ago. And who's going to go to Albania? How are they going to hear the gospel? Friends, there is so much work left to do. We don't have time to sit around arguing about what color the skies are and just exactly when is Jesus going to return. These are distractions. There's too much to do to train people for the work that has yet to be done. There are missionaries to be sent. There are indigenous pastors that need to be trained and taught how to equip others with the gospel. Friend, you have children sitting in this room in the nurseries that need to be trained not just how to make money, not just how to make a living, but how to live, how to make a life that matters for the kingdom. There's too much left to be done. And in all of our distractions and all of the things that we like to be consumed with, Jesus looks at us in verse 9. He tells us over and over, be on your guard. Look at what he says there in verse 13. 
You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Well, that's not a very positive confession. Jesus is saying some negative things here. No, he's just telling us the truth. He's not trying to live in some legally blonde fairy tale of, well, everyone will love you. No, everyone will not love you. And Jesus says, will you follow me? Will you be where I have been? If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Will you come and follow me? And it's so easy and tempting to, to listen to that voice that says, oh, it's going to get so much better. And Jesus has returned and he set up camp out in the woods and he set up camp in Mississippi. If he set up camp in Mississippi, don't go there. It's not Jesus. I can guarantee you that. Too much humidity. Jesus doesn't love the humidity. He loves the people. But he tells us over and over, you're going to be lied to, you're going to be hated, but I want you to, verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 23, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Verse 33, be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know the time when the time will come. Verse 35, therefore stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Friends, we completely ignore the injunction to be on your guard and stay awake and we concentrate all of our energies on trying to figure out just exactly when is he going to return. How long is he going to stay? Did anyone notice how many clothes he took? Did he take his credit cards? Did he take his passport? If he took his passport, then he's leaving the country. He left the country. But friends, when he returns is not our problem. It's not even his problem. That belongs to the Father. What is our responsibility in the meantime? It is that we get back to the work that he left us with. Friends, he didn't promise us a bag of M&Ms to the one who won the pool, closest guest to the return of Christ. Thank you. His command is to the work. Quit arguing among yourselves and get to the work. Quit seeking your own promotion and get to the work. There are too many who are going to hell and there are too many hands at, at the job of telling them about Jesus. Get to the work. And friends, he has called us to more than attending Sunday church service and maybe an occasional community group. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he has given you by divine presence and gift of his Holy Spirit, he's given you a gift and he's given you a place to use that gift. He's given you work to do. And, and he equips you to do it. And he says, now let's do this thing. The greater question in my mind is not if Jesus were to return this afternoon, would he find you in the movie theater or would you find you in the house of God? The greater question in my mind is if Jesus were to return this afternoon, would he find you faithful with what he's given you to do for his kingdom? And friends, that's all that matters because what do we want to hear on that day? Well done. You were a good and faithful servant. Don and I, when we lived in Parowan, I had a lot of pastors down to St. George that we would go down. I'd go down there two or three times a week. And from my house to the Shoney's in uh, St. George, I think it was at JB's. Anyway, it doesn't matter. They're out of business. From my house to Shoney's, we'll say, was one hour and five minutes. And so I'd go down there two, three, four times a week and catch up with people. And most of the time I'd call when I was on my way home. You know. Well, sometimes Donna would get to go with me, which means five kids are left at the house to do whatever destruction they can do while mom and dad are gone. And um, when it was time to come home, we would usually call. How's it going? Going good. Uh, we told you to take apart the fort that you built in your bedroom of, of old pallets and dead animal parts. Have you gotten that taken apart yet? 
Oh, yes. You got the house clean. Oh, oh, it is so clean. Okay, good. We'll be home soon. They'd hang up the phone. We didn't hear, hear that, find this out until years later. Now, my, kid, my, my, my kids that are adults in this room, you know how Pastor Kevin has a rule that he pays his kids when he uses them? You go to him for the money because I'm not paying you a dime. Um, so we didn't find this out until years later, but when they would hang up the phone, whoever was hanging up the phone, they're coming. <laughs> Hurry. We've got to get the work done. And you'd be amazed how much work can be done by five kids who are highly motivated in one hour and five minutes. Every now and then we'd call from like Tokerville, you know. See you in an hour and five. Be home in 40. (laughs) Friends, how much time do we spend watching the sky trying to discern the colors to see when is he coming back rather than just get to the work? There's so much to be done. I took a woodworking course years ago, and the guy who was teaching, he was teaching us about table saws one day. You got the fence, and you got the blade. And the fence is over on the right, and that's what you keep your wood up against, and then you run it through, and the blade cuts it. So one guy in the class said, so what do we watch? Do we watch the fence or the blade? He said, watch the fence. The blade knows how to take care of itself. It'll do what it's called to do. You keep your board against that fence over there. And friend, we spend so much time watching the blade. Oh, when's Jesus going to come? And we're going to argue about it as if we actually know anything about the future and divide ourselves over when he's going to come in the future rather than watch the fence. He'll take care of when he comes back. There's work to do in the meantime. And it's tragic how we have divided over something that is supposed to be so encouraging and uniting for the body of Christ. The last nationwide revival in this country could arguably be called the Jesus Movement of the 60s and 70s. The main theme of the Jesus Movement, I'm going to say a few lines and then, Shannon, you'll finish it for me. Life was filled with guns and war and everyone lay trampled on the floor. What? I wish we'd all been ready. Jesus is coming. Here's another one. Jesus is coming back to stay. It could be any time of day. Jesus is coming back. I know the Holy Spirit told me so. My son Andrew kind of laughs at me. He says, Dad, I can, I can pick out just about any song out of the Jesus movement because they all talk about Jesus coming back somehow. Well, a lot of them do. And we kind of have to admit that. I had a guy who was... That, the second coming of Jesus was just the the preeminent message of the Jesus movement. He's coming back, and he could come back at any moment. I had a buddy. He was, was lost, and he was working with a guy who was a Christian. They were unloading trucks, uh, semi-truck loads of hay. And my buddy was down on the ground, and the Christian guy was up on top. And the Christian just kept telling him, you need to get saved, man. You have no clue when Jesus can. Nobody knows when Jesus can. He could come back at any time, and this is going for days and days. And then finally one, guy, one day the guy said, man, you just need to get saved. Jesus is coming back soon. He could come back before we get done loading, unloading this truck, and you'd have to finish unloading this hay all by yourself. And my buddy got saved. That, that was just kind of the theme of the Jesus movement. But I'll tell you what. Jesus was everywhere, man. They, you remember, um, put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. That's on the radio. You had the singing nun singing the, the Lord's Prayer on the secular radio stations. You had Chris Christopherson singing, Why Me Lower Duck? I didn't know you could pronounce Lord in three syllables, but there you have it, Lower Duck. And it's all, Jesus was on the front page of Time magazine in 1971. That was the theme of the Jesus movement. 
But friends, the centrality of the command to stay awake does not revolve around all of our attempts in the Jesus movement and everything since then to discern when is Jesus going to return. He didn't tell us this passage so that we could figure it out and prove how much smarter we are than the rest of the history of the church. He told us this because there's there's a central key in it. There's a part in it that is so easy to miss. We'll turn it into an argument to prove we're more right than the Oz or the posts or the mids of the group and miss altogether verse 34. Look at what it says. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Friends, there is work to be done. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, He has given you a job to do, each with His work. And the return of Jesus is going to be a great day. It's going to be exciting. I've looked forward to it for a lot of years, and I got it wrong a lot of times. (laughs) Mercifully, I never sold everything and went and stood on top of the hill. (laughs) Came close, you know. We were really close to stupid. (laughs) Friends, it's going to be a great day. But until then... Until then, we have work that needs to be done. And he commands us to stay awake. And friends, he tells us to stay awake because there's just something powerful about being faithful, about sticking with something to the end, about seeing it through. How many of you you live in a house that's full of unfinished hobbies? Doesn't that get frustrating? Now, don't go talking bad about your husband on the way home. Or your wife. But don't you like it when you see the end of something? When you get to the end of it and you go, it's a job well done. We finished it. Now we get paid for it being done. And friends, Jesus has called us to stay awake, to be faithful, to be consistent, to stick with something that's worth sticking with. Faithfulness to the end is a powerful thing in and of itself. And you know what's interesting? John 13:1 says that Jesus loved them how long? All the way to the end. 1 Corinthians 1.8, it says, He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He promises us in Matthew 28, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is faithful, and the same one, He is the same one who He is faithful to the end. He looks at us in Matthew 10.22 and says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 3, 14, hold your original confession firm to the end. Having a faith that gets you all the way through to the end is verification that your faith was genuine at the beginning. And Jesus looks at us and says, I want you to be faithful all the way to the end. And the church stood up in the 60s and 70s and said, oh, Jesus is coming back any minute. You better be ready. And we got laughed at in the 70s and the 80s because Jesus forgot to sync his Google calendar with us. And he missed his return flight. And the second coming, that thing that Titus 2.13 calls the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the blessed hope became a laughing stock. It became a mockery with the world because we stood up and said, we know these things. We're looking at the signs of the times and we have it all figured out. And we were wrong. And friends, the glorious repeat, the blessed hope is not meant to be a joke. It is meant to inspire us. And then there are those who look at it and go, well, oh, you better be afraid. Jesus is coming back any time. And if he catches you in a movie theater, what will he think then? He could come back at any moment. Donna was at a 
Donna was at a camp meeting one time when she was a kid, you know, a, a camp for kids and such. And the guy was preaching on Jesus is coming back anytime. You know, he could come back at any moment. The trumpet could blast at any moment. And right about the time he said that, there was a kid he had placed outside with a trumpet that he couldn't play, you know. And he blows this hideous note on the trumpet and Donna goes, oh no, Jesus, you know. She didn't want to go yet. She wanted, she had things she wanted to get done. I'd like to see some things done first. And it was used to scare people, put into tracks to scare the wits out of them. Friends, it's the, the second coming is not something that's to scare people. According to Luke 21, Jesus said when you see all these bad things happening, it's not about fear, it's not to, to scare you half to death. When you see these things begin to take place, straighten up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Man, it's to give us hope, it's to give us rejoicing. It's not to instill us with fear. And then there are those that you listen to them, and the more you listen to them, the madder you get. You don't know who you're mad at, you know, but all those, all those politicians that are making life so terrible, they're making it so Jesus can come back sooner. Something ought to be done about those terrible politicians. Well, if you want Jesus to come back and they're the cause of it, then vote for them, you know. It makes sense to me. If all the second coming does, talking about it does, is make you get angry about something, you, you might be looking through the wrong lens. Because, friends, anger is not the proper end of biblical eschatology. The word eschatology means the study of last things, the end times. It's the study of when Jesus comes back. And a proper biblical eschatology has a result. But, friends, it's not fear. It's not anger. It's not looking for ways to be lazy. They're the proper end of thinking about, of studying, of believing in the second coming of Christ. It's found in 1 John chapter 3 when it says, We... We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And he who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Friends, the right understanding of Jesus' return makes it so that I want to be cleaned up. I want to be right with Jesus. I want to be purified. I want to look more like him. There's something deliberate and intentional. He that has this hope purifies himself. There's something deliberate about that. I determine that I want real life transformation. I want genuine, practical change of who I am into who He is because the day's coming when He's going to return. And Man, I, I want to be like Him. Friends, there's work to do. Not only in the change of who we are, but in the dissemination of the message that Jesus is Lord and there's salvation in no one other than Him. And so we pray, Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus, Revelation 22. We, we pray, Maranatha, with our deepest breath while we work. We pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus, while we work, put our hand to the task. And we stick with it because, friends, it's the good and faithful servant who hears, well done. And Jesus, in our passage in verse 13, looks at us and says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. I don't want to get halfway there. I don't want to get three-quarters of the way there and then stop. Don't you, don't you want to be faithful all the way to the end? Don't you want to serve him right up to the end? And, you know, I'm getting a little bit older. I sound like Rice Krispies when I get up in the middle of the night to go, take, to go get some Oreos. And <laughs> all my joints creaking and popping and carrying on, and sometimes I wonder, how did I make it there and back, you know, just wobbly. But, friends, I want to make it well to the end, don't you? There's something about being faithful all the way to the end. And we say Maranatha because his appearing 
will see us finally and completely transformed in His image. And we say Maranatha because won't it be wonderful to finally be with Him in glory. But in the meantime, just like Moses in Hebrews chapter 3 was faithful in all of God's house, just like Jesus in Hebrews 3, 1 the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. In verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. That same one looks at us and tells us to labor faithfully because, verse 34, Mark 13, 34, he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. We didn't plan it this way, but today is ministry fair. I didn't plan it that this sermon would be on that day and didn't even realize it until I was working on this sermon. But it's so easy to sit back and say, oh, there's nothing for me to do. There's just nothing for me to do. I'm just so busy with everything else. There's nothing that could fit into my schedule. But friends, I want to encourage you. We have over 80 people volunteering just in the booths. There's something to do. I, I want to encourage you to go back there and find out the, the ministries that are attached to this church somehow that are opportunities for you to serve. You have something. You have a gift that nobody else has quite like you do. And God's looking at you saying, I have a place for you to work. Will you do it? I want to encourage you to go check out the ministry fair. There's food back there. I don't know what kind, but better than what you're going to get at Taco Bell, you know, I would assume. Would you be willing to just, just look at Jesus and say, what do you want me to do? I'm, not, I'm going to give it my best effort. And if it's, you don't see anything back there, maybe you'd like to start a community group. Then go talk to Jared. Ask, Je ask him to help you. Ask him to equip you to get the job done. Let's get something done for the kingdom. Because friends, the time is coming so quickly when there will not be any more opportunity to get the work done. Some of you might be sitting here this morning and you have to recognize, wow, I've, I've never even heard any of this stuff. I've never accepted Christ as my Savior. I don't know what this guy's talking about. Second coming, what about first coming? Listen, I want you to know Jesus came because a debt was owed by your sins and mine. And Jesus came to pay that debt by his death on the cross. And now he offers to you, I will give you forgiveness of sin. But I demand something in return, and what I demand is your life. Give me your life. Will you do what I tell you to do? Will you receive me as your Lord? If you'll receive me as Lord, if you'll confess him as Lord then there will be forgiveness of sin. Have you ever accepted Christ as your Savior? And if not, why not? He is coming. And friends, when He comes, it's over then, and our God is a refining fire. Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? If you have not, and you would like to know more about what God's Word, the Bible, has to say about how you can become a Christian, talk with us afterwards. We'd love to share with you how you can become a Christian. But friends, for the vast majority of us in this room, are you content to come to church on Sunday? Are you content to maybe go to a community group every now and then and throw a, throw a 20 in the offering plate? Or is there something that drives your soul? Is there a passion that gets you up in the morning that makes you want to serve Jesus? Friend, if he saved you, he's equipped you, and he's called you to do something. What are you doing for the kingdom? Let's pray. God, there's so much to be done there. We look forward to your return and we look forward to getting out of these breaking down bodies. 
Father, we, we get, it's so easy to get so sidetracked and distracted with how great it's going to be that we forget that there's work to be done now. God, please forgive us for that. Thank you for the example of faithfulness that we see in Jesus, that he just, he did, he did what he came to do. And he did it for us. And now, Father, the calling that you... placed on our lives. God, we get tempted to quit. We get discouraged. We think about just let somebody else do it. God, please forgive us for that. We get content to just sit in the house and eat the food and enjoy the fellowship, which is wonderful. But God, just outside the house, there's a whole world that needs to hear about Jesus. at us and said the fields are white to harvest pray the Lord of the harvest that he'll send laborers into the field and then in the very next verse the ones who were praying are the ones he sent God make us like Isaiah who in just overhearing the heart of God who will we send and who will go for us who, who can we send to these people just overhearing the heart of God Isaiah jumped up in, in near ecstasy and said oh send me I, here am I send me God, please make us, make in us a heart that says, I'm yours. Use me any way you want. Put me to the work, dear God, please. There's peace and contentment in the Father's house today. Lots of food on the table and no one has turned they're singing and laughter as the hours pass by. But a hush comes a singing as the Father said. Yeah. 
sit at the table, enjoy your presence, enjoy the fellowship of others, and leave the world to go to hell. God, we want to ask you, please forgive us. For those of us who have been content to think about those afar off, but to forget our friends and family, the ones that need to see Christ in us, we, we just hope somebody else will get them. God, we want to ask you to forgive us. Please use us. Father, there might be very well be some in this room who you've, you've called to serve in a foreign land. God, I want to ask you to speak to them in terms that they can understand the place and the work you've called them to do. God, we want to be faithful to go and to send. Father, for those that you've called to labor here, we want to ask to be faithful. Make us faithful here. We just choose to be faithful in Jesus' name. God, there's so much to be done. This place is so lost. And we ask you in accordance with your word, send laborers into the field. And God, when you're sending folks, please send me. I don't want to, I don't want to quit before I'm done. God, the temptation has been there be like George Fox, that great evangelist. He said, I don't want to burn up for the kingdom. God, please use us until that last day. When either on our deathbed we go home or you return, God, so that we can hear this was a good and faithful servant. Father, I want to ask you to bless his people. We speak a blessing over them as we leave this week. I want to ask that as we go to the ministry fair that you'll speak to us in areas that You've called us to serve. You've gifted us. You've, you've given us your Holy Spirit. Father, Father, we don't want to. We don't want to use your gift on ourselves alone. Father, pour us out on all these nations around us, around the world, for the sake of your kingdom. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are a blessing. You're dismissed.